AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is longtime manager of Kenny Rogers, Ken Cragen. Here to tell some Kenny Rogers tales. Ken, how you doing? Just great. Terrific. Uh, sadly, you losing Kenny March 20th. Since that time, there's been so much outpouring of love all over the world for him. It's uh, quite heartening. Okay, so how did you meet Kenny? You know, I first met Kenny way, way, way back in the early 60s uh, when I was managing, I think, probably the Smothers Brothers in those days. And I went to Houston and a DJ there and his wife took me to a little jazz club. And he was playing bass with a Bobby Doyle trio. And uh, I, I was introduced to him. I didn't think anything of it at the time. number of years went by. He joined the Christie Minstrels, the new Christie Minstrels. And I went on and was producing the Smothers Brothers comedy show. And a lawyer kept calling me, called me six straight weeks, and pushed me to go see a group at a club called Ledbetters in Westwood, here and uh, finally, I was very busy with the show, and but I finally went down there and I just flipped for him. In fact, I brought Tommy Smothers the next night, and within a week they were appearing on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Just which, because uh, I'm interested in club history, tell me about Ledbetters. Where was it in Westwood? Ledbetters was on Westwood Boulevard, and it was owned by the guy who was the head of the New Christie Minstrels. Um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name now. He's very well known. Um, but, um, but he had, he owned that club and, uh, the first edition were just playing there and they were playing there for a couple of weeks. And I went in there almost every night for a while. They, they were fronted by a 
gorgeous, gorgeous uh, lady, young woman by the name of um, Thelma Camacho, and then uh, other people in it. Kenny was playing stand-up bass. He was quite a bit older than the other members. They had all left the New Christie Minstrels because Mike Settle, uh, who was a writer, he couldn't get the Christie Minstrels to do any of his songs. So he formed this group from the Christie Minstrels, and they started singing songs that Mike had written. So you go to see them, and you get Tommy to come. How long after that till they get on the telecast? Probably a week. A week. <laughs> well, we were a live show on, you know, on Sunday nights. I mean, well, when I say live, we taped, we taped and then went out. But, uh, uh, but it was kind of amazing. I mean, literally a week later, they were on the show. Uh, everybody fell for them. And, um, and more than one of us, uh, f- fell for Thelma. In fact, I think she started dating Mason Williams, who was the head writer on the show at the time. Of course, we had classical gas later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was quite a quite an era. Did they already have just dropped in? You know, I don't know. I think that came along later. They didn't. Uh, Mike didn't write it. Mike was with the group for the first year and a half or two, and then he left because his wife gave him uh, an, an ultimatum. She said, "Either uh, you, you know, you stay at home, and we have a relationship here. You're always on the road, or we don't have a marriage, and I'm leaving." So I ran into him about a year or two later in L.A. And I said, Mike, so how did it work out? I know you, you know, he said, well, my wife and I, we went for therapy, went for couples therapy. He said, I said, well, so did that work? He said, no, no, it didn't work. But boy, did I get great ideas for songs. (laughs) But he was left out of the first edition. He was out of the first edition by that point. And the song. How'd you become the manager? You know, I started managing virtually right away. I had other clients. I had uh, uh, other clients at the time, although the Smothers were certainly the major one. And, um, And I took them on. And they didn't have any real hits at that point. Their first album out wasn't out yet. They had. Do they signed, have a previous manager that you? Uh, not that took no, over no, because they had just come. It hadn't been that long since they came out of the Christie Minstrels, and um, and so I I got to manage them right from the beginning. I remember one of the first things I booked for them was a little club in Boston, and we went there. And we would have like six or eight people. It was in a basement in Boston. And we would have maybe six to eight people in the audience at night. And one of those nights, the one of the smother shows that they taped was on. So I brought a TV set and put it on a stool on stage. And the group came out, down into the audience, which doubled the audience, by the way. <laughs> and we all watched the show on the stage. It was very funny. But, uh, but they, you know, they didn't, they started having a few hits. Throw a little bit slower than that. Okay, you have the act, you sign them. You put them on the Smothers Brothers show. In that era of the 60s, mid-60s, did that immediately mean they had traction, or did you were starting at yeah, the beginning? Yeah, 68, actually. Uh, it was, uh, it, it, you know, remember, there were three networks. Uh, we had, um, you know, Bonanza had been the number one show in, in America, and we'd been, they'd been, shows had been for eight years trying to knock it off. CBS had tried everything, and nothing worked. Absolutely nothing worked. So they threw our show on, figuring nothing was going to happen with it, and we exploded. 
And, you know, it was uh, Vietnam and it was protesting and it was young people and we were all young. And, you know, I mean, I was wearing beads and peace medals and long hair in those days. And, um, and we related to that young audience out there. And all of a sudden the show became a big hit and we literally knocked Bonanza out of number one and went to the number one show in the country every week. And, uh, and we had just great pieces on that show. I, I, we were talking the other night about, um, uh, we had a, a, a bit called Have a Little Tea with Goldie. And, um, she would come on each night and go, and it was all drug references, but the network, despite the <laughs> fact they censored the show highly, they never got the drug references. She opened her bit, uh, with, um, she'd say, I want to greet all you women the way I always do. Hi. <laughs> and, and, you know, and oh, I appreciate all of you sending me your old roaches <laughs> that you've gathered around the house. You know, stuff like that. They would we'd get away with murder on it. We even put on the Smother Show, which was getting from about the first, end of the first couple of months, it started getting censored or at least censored the, the CBS guys would take the script and look at it and say, you can't say yet, you can't say this. We would put four letter words in the script that we knew they were going to immediately knock out. And then they'd miss the next joke, which, uh, which was a double, which had a double entendre to it and was kind of, was what we really wanted to get across. It was like a fun game all the time up until the end. So you have this, uh, the Kenny Rogers in the first edition, although it's just called the first edition on the Smothers Brothers. Do they have a record deal at that point? Yes, they did at Warner Brothers. Uh, uh, Terry Williams, one of the members' mother, had, was working at Warner Brothers, and and they they got a deal at Warner Brothers. Uh, a producer later went on to be very successful, and Mike Post came in, produced some terrific songs for them, and songs started happening. When they had that deal, that was before you got involved? Uh Yes, they had some kind of deal. I didn't make the deal at, at Warner Brothers. I remember we got the first album and they weren't happy with the cover and a lot of other stuff. It was almost, you know, like the movie Spinal Tap, uh, you know, when the group gets the album and hates it. Um, but, you know, the Just Dropped In certainly was the biggest break we got in those days. Just uh, just to go back. So Mike Post, who ultimately, this is the same guy who became famous for writing all the TV themes, right? Yeah, yeah, all the themes for television shows. And, and to scoring. what degree was an integral part of the success of uh, I think the first he was edition. major success in those early days with the hits, you know, Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town, and and uh, all of the various hits that came out of the first edition uh, in that early, early period were Mike Post. And um, and I, I, I do think it's funny you mentioned uh, just dropped in. I think just dropped in to see what condition my condition is in is a perfect song for today. <laughs> <laughs> I love that record. Yeah, we That's all how I do. first was aware of Kenny Rogers. But of course, everybody then thought they were some kind of, you know, super hip uh, group and they were as straight as an arrow, you know. In those days, they didn't touch anything. Uh, you well, know, that was drink. a big hit on the, on the East Coast. How did you make it a hit? You know, it's a good question. I think that record really made the group a hit more than we made that record. Yeah, I mean, many times over the years, I've worked radio very, very hard. Um, 
I think the only thing we did basically to try and support records was travel and 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 do shows all over the country and visit radio stations and do you know it was all radio at that point um and um and I had here's a kind of a wild part of the story that we you get a kick out of when I first came out of Harvard Business School in the in 1960 uh I was managing a group called the Limelighters and I took their record into a radio station, the WBZ in Boston, and the music director and the sort of librarian music director was Joe Smith. <laughs> so by the time we got to the Warner Brothers deal, he, you know, he and Mo Austin were the Gold Dust Twins or the co, the co uh, heads of Warner Brothers Records. So I had a relationship there, which was great. In fact, at one point, I had five acts on their label that were hits. So. Uh just dropped in becomes a success and what's the next move uh well the group starts playing concerts everywhere and doing very well for a few years and one song after another reuben james uh i mentioned ruby don't take your love to town the big change came about almost two years into it or a year into the group um when uh we had one record out that was doing okay on the charts and they wanted to put out a it might have been Ruby, uh, and Kenny was lead lead vocalist. I don't remember the exact record, and I had a meeting at Warner Brothers with Mo and Joe and everybody there and decided that the best way to put the second record out was call it Kenny Rogers in the first edition for the second record. And that stuck because that record went on to be a huge hit. So it was either Ruby or Just Dropped In. It was one of those. And the rest of the group, you know, they accepted it, although it wasn't, I mean, they didn't fight among each other ever, really. But uh, but I'm sure that Terry Williams and some of the others in the group felt a little bad at first that suddenly Kenny was the front guy because, you know, he was kind of an, he was the bass player and an older guy in the group, the oldest by, by a long shot. Trying, by the way, to look hip. He was wearing dark glasses and letting his hair grow and doing everything he could to look as hip as possible. So how long does it run with the first edition? It runs to about 1975. And I'll never forget the last engagement was at Magic Mountain. Very depressing for a group that had been drawing big audiences all over the world, actually. You this know, is even, an amusement park in Southern California. Yeah, yeah. And... uh and that was they broke up right after that. Uh, Kenny was at that point sixty five million dollars in debt, had gotten a divorce, uh, was uh, or at least it was in the process of it, and it was pretty downcast. Uh, however, he uh, you know he had met Marianne, who was a uh, who became his wife. Ultimately, uh, he met her in Nashville at, doing hee haw, and he spent a lot of time in Nashville. And a uh, manager from there, sort of a manager, a guy, uh, offered him, uh, what he offered him was $750,000 to come down there and let him manage it. Uh, Kenny never saw but a fraction of that money, a very tiny bit of it. Uh, and it didn't. that didn't work out. But, so he had ultimately moved on from you at the end of the first edition? Yeah, he left. I was kind of broke. And uh, I went and joined Jerry Weintraub's office. And Kenny, in the meantime, went to Nashville. So did the band blame you? Because usually the manager gets blamed when the band is not doing that well. 
I've, I've rarely had that. I hate this. I mean, I not hate to say it. You lose artists because one of two reasons. You lose them because you didn't do a very good job and they're disgruntled and unhappy. Or you lose them because you did a very good job and they think, I don't need to be paying him all that money. <laughs> I, I lost Trisha Yearwood over that, over over the, how much I was making. She was making several times, maybe 10 times what I was, but she was. I was making a commission of maybe 750000 at that point, almost a million. And you take a look at that. She was now with Garth, who felt he could pretty much advise her. And... Um, and she just came to me one day and said, you're making almost as much money as I am. But she was looking at her net versus my gross. And uh, and we parted over that. And I had done, I think, a pretty spectacular job for her. I, I've rarely lost anybody. I mean, Kenny, I managed for 33 years. Well, staying with Kenny, he, he goes to Nashville and it doesn't work out. How do the two of you hook back up? I signed it with Jerry Weintraub. I'm being ha handling, gosh, the Carpenters and, and Harry Chapin and and doing some work for John Denver, all Jerry's clients at a phenomenal company. And uh, I get a call from Kenny from Nashville, and he's left this guy. And he suddenly wants my management back. Uh, I'm at Jerry's. I go to Jerry, and Jerry says, forget it. He's washed up. He's Nothing's going to happen with him. Don't sign him. But I sign him over Jerry's objection, which later really backfires on Jerry because Kenny never forgets that Jerry didn't want him. Uh, and I don't quite, I doubt if I told him that, but somehow he found that out. Anyway, I sign him and I put him out on the road with the carp, with uh, uh, the captain and Tennille. And it's really interesting what happens because they give him 10, 15 feet in front of the curtain to perform. Now, remember, he's been part of a group that's been very big at one point. And he calls me and he says, I'm so discouraged. You know, I go out there. They really want the headliner that, you know, I'm out there as a solo artist. I just think I'm going to quit this. I think I'm going to stop. And I spend, you know, I don't know how much time, an hour or something, really pumping him up and talking to him and keeping him going. And he stays in it. And one of the things it does is tremendously influence him. Later on, when he takes artists such as Garth Brooks on the road, and Garth actually talked about this recently on a tribute to Kenny, when Kenny takes uh, artists on the road, he gives them the full stage, everything they want to work with, all the lighting, everything. He does everything he can to make them feel as much at home and as much a star as he possibly can. And I think it came from the way he felt with Captain and Tennille. Uh, I don't think that Captain and Tennille really ever thought anything about it. They probably didn't realize how it affected him. But, it, uh, but hey, then, uh, you know, he, he runs into Larry Butler in Nashville, in the Pancake Pantry, and they he goes to his office later, and they make a deal for a record. Okay, tell us who Larry. Tell us about Larry Butler. Larry Butler is a producer who did Johnny Cash, a whole slew of top artists, um, uh, and he was a very very prolific producer. And they record sixteen songs together, and they send them to me. I'm now working at Jerry Weintraub's office. And he has a whole promotion department of his own, music guys that go out and promote the records with radio. And we all sit in a conference room uh, on the floor of the conference room listening to these 16 songs. 
and we get to one called Lucille and we really crack up. We're literally rolling around the floor going, this is crazy. This is, and I said, this is either, you know, a dud as a novelty song or it's the biggest hit he could have. And sure enough, it turns out. And by the way, it was the name of his mother. His mother <laughs> is, and it, he didn't write it. And his mother got upset because, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's about uh, leaving her husband and, and the crop and the, with the cro- four kids and the crop in the field, you know, and stuff. And he says, why did you do that about me? This isn't my life. I never did that. She had eight kids. Uh, but anyway, it goes on to be a number one record. He wins, he, he wins Song of the Year and the CMA Awards. Um, it, it becomes the real song that kicked him off. However, I will say, I tried to get the record company to release it first off of those 16 songs he'd recorded, and they didn't. They released one or two others before they went to Lucille. They all just felt that Lucille was, was you know, not going to make it, that it was too unusual and different a song. But boy, it resonated, and it it kicked the career into high gear. It was you know, Gambler coming along later kicked it higher, but and a lot of other things we did, which we can talk about. But uh, but uh, Lucille. Okay, so Lucille. Now, what record label is this? This becomes Liberty, I believe. We're on at that point. Part of the EMI emperor. Yeah, part of EMI. Because then Jim Mazza came in and headed Capital, which owned EMI or had bought EMI. And, um, so it, um, but we start having hits then and, and one after the other, but the, the big, big moment for Kenny really was that Larry Butler had recorded the gambler, a John Schlitz song. Don was then 23 years old and had written a bunch of songs that didn't go anywhere. And one of his friends told him, gee, you really should develop that one about the gambler. And he did. And Cash recorded it, but didn't like it that well. And so Larry, feeling Cash wasn't going to put it out, recorded it with Kenny. After Kenny made it the enormous hit it was, Cash wasn't very happy that his hadn't come out. But uh, although Johnny Cash was a great guy, I knew him well. Um, but, um, you know, the gambler really established Kenny. And, and it did it for a bunch of reasons. One, he, he looked the part. He fitted it. It it felt, he, you know, you felt like he was singing about himself almost. And um, and we got an album cover done by a fabulous photographer named Reed Miles, who uh, was sort of the Norman Rockwell of the photo- photographers. He would bring in actors and put them around an artist. And he brought it, you know, The Gambler was based like in the 1800s, the way Reed saw it. And he put it, Kenny as the dealer in the midst of this cast of characters. And that album cover was just sensationally good. And the song, of course, I mean, you got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. You got to know when to walk away. You got to know when to run. Resonated even to this day. People use it all the time, even to this day. Uh, and, uh, And then, of course, we went on to make these huge movies. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal. 
and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. So tell us how the movies came about. Well, that's a fun story. Uh, Kenny had gotten pretty big with all the other stuff, including The Gambler, and he was now hosting the the Country Music Awards, the CMA Awards from Nashville. And at rehearsal, the day before the awards, two of the top guys from CBS who happened to buy movies of the week for the network, uh, one being Fred Rappaport, I, I blanked on the name of the other guy, they were sitting in the green room with me while Kenny was out rehearsing. And I had a poster of the cover of The Gambler. Now, you have to understand, I'd never made a movie before. Kenny had acted in one in some small part. Uh, we had no experience, really. And I enrolled this poster, this big, huge poster, like a movie poster, and said, we want to make this as a movie. And the two guys sitting on the couch looked at me and went, sold. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you love to be able to do that today? Oh, yeah. Okay. I've got, we've got, I've got two projects out right now and you have to go through all kinds of hoops to get them made. But, um, but that, it did take six months more to negotiate a deal. But by that fall, uh, we were, we were out there making that movie in October and it went on in November, literally, and uh, went through the roof. It became the highest rated movie in history on television. Uh, highest rated movie for television movie of the week was a two hour version. But as a result of that, as a result of that one success where we got like a 52 share and a 35 rating, you know, unbelievable numbers nowadays, except for Super Bowls and other things like that. Uh, when we got these huge numbers, 
we CBS got us to make four miniseries after that, and we did so. We did a total of eighteen hours of Gamblers, and uh, it it you know was just an and the second one was bigger than the first one, and it was a miniseries. So I mean, talk, that really established Kenny, you know. Uh, much like Dolly got established with nine to five on a higher level, Kenny got established with his films before nine, well before nine to five. Um, Kenny was very established and and one of the few country stars uh, at that time, as far as I know, to ever take that kind of leap into that huge success. Certainly, nobody else had that kind of success. And I had a lot of fun with that boy. Every promotional tool in my tool book uh, toolbox came out for promoting the gambler give us give us some examples well you know we were on the cover of tv guide we were in we had we did posters that were every we treated it like a feature film uh you know i have that whole belief which i think i've been on your show and talked about before about the magic of threes i had didn't realize that it was a real technique at that point but i would surround anything with so many different promotional things from radio calls and promotion contests uh advertising get the network to spend a lot of money on the advertising piece that work closely with them on all of those aspects i even by the way on all my films and all my tv shows i've always shot the stills there's been a network tv film you know photographer there too but i know exactly what i want to promote with so i would go out and i, I love taking pictures and i would take pictures through the whole time wait give them back to the smothers brothers show i took pictures every week printed up the best ones and sent them to the people who appeared on our show in a leather-bound book um you know i just it was just part of my part of what i did i always felt 50 percent of the job was making the film still feel this way 50 percent is promoting it so how did kenny handle all this success that's the great thing about kenny rogers um Interestingly, he would never get too high and never get too low. He was the most even guy that I ever knew. Changed a little later in life, but not that much, but uh, until toward the last couple of years. But we talk about that later. But in fact, um, Kenny had this ability to just stay sort of level. He, you know, I think one of the reasons the gambler is so successful is much like Kenny himself, the character doesn't take himself too seriously. There's a lot of fun in that in the movies. And my favorite film always was uh, Butch and Sundance. So I uh, I think maybe, although I didn't write the script, I think I pushed for that kind of humor to go through it along with, you know, whatever the uh, whatever the threat was, uh, my fa- I always think the best films are ones that combine something you can laugh at or be amused by with with the tension of an ongoing, you know, thriller. Okay, so at this level of success, are you worried about overexposure? Well, I got a lot of flack for that kind of thing. I did, uh, and yet I just didn't worry about it as long as we kept changing. That's the one thing I've always done in my career is find what is the real person, what their interests are and find ways to make those work. I remember Olivia Newton-John when she got pregnant, I remember telling her do an album of uh, 
uh, of lullabies. And after the baby's born, you can go on TV and talk about how you put your kid to get to sleep with the lullabies and you've got an album of them so other people can do it. And she said, my God, you're the only guy I know who made getting pregnant a career event. But I would do that with Kenny. He was a phenomenal photographer. I mean, world class. And, you know, we, we put his pictures up in New York and in uh, uh, film galleries, I mean, in, in this, you know, art galleries, and Time Magazine covered it. And we did, uh, he was a terrific tennis player and ended up actually getting ranked as a doubles player, traveled with a pro who later became one of his best friends. And um, uh, anything he did, and I, and I saw an interview the other day with him about that. He said, the one thing I seem to be able to do is, uh, and is focus totally. Uh, it, it's a combination of focus and being addictive. You know, if photography was it, he had a dark room and he was in there. In fact, he had vocal trouble as a result of the uh, use working so much in a dark room with the chemicals. Uh, and he had to stop doing that. And of course, later on, everything became digital. But each, whatever his passion was, golf, I mean, you know, he, he bought a place in Athens, Georgia, uh, and he built, uh, it was about 1,200 acres and he built a, a golf course that looked like Augusta with lakes and bridges and everything. And he had pros come down there and play it. And not only did they come and play it, but he had a thing that would pick, could dig up trees or create sand traps while you were at lunch. So where he'd see where <laughs> there were, yeah, I know, it's typical, where you, he'd see where everybody was hitting when you came back out after lunch to play. And this was a lot of times with pros. He he had moved things around on the course. <laughs> it wasn't the same course you just played in the morning. Uh, he just, you know, anything he did, he did it classy, first rate. He built houses. He did all the planning and decoration. He, you know, he nailed up stuff himself and worked on the, on the walls and un unbelievable. He was completely dedicated to whatever his passion was at that moment in time. And by the way, if it was a woman, he was completely dedicated there. You could, <laughs> we'd be on the set saying, quit making calls to Marianne and, you know, and uh, we got to get you back to work. I mean, literally, whatever he was focused on, he was truly focused. Well, staying with the women, he was married multiple times. Five times. Why do you, yep. why do you think that was? Well, the first one was one of those had to get married. He felt he got a, a woman pregnant while he was in high school, I believe. And he felt the honorable thing he was living in Houston, Texas, was to marry her. And he did, and that didn't last long, but they had a kid. And uh, and he didn't see that kid for like 18 years because they after they broke up and uh, finally, finally got back together. It was quite a reunion. In the meantime, he got married again and had uh, Kenny Jr., a very funny, clever young man. Uh, and uh, And then when that marriage broke up, um, he met Marianne and they had what had been one of his longest marriages at that point. She was still, even to this day, I mean, she loved Kenny greatly even after they were divorced and she worried about him. And she, like a year ago, she called me and said, he's kind of down because he doesn't work now. We've got to do something for his birthday. I mean, this is his ex-wife. She was wonderful about it. And then he eventually met um, a much younger woman, Wanda, uh, gorgeous, beautiful twin, and they had twins. And now there are sons that I think are around 13 or 14 years old. 
um, with Wanda. And that's one of the shames of Kenny passing away. But they're certainly getting to see, I mean, there have been at least five tributes to Kenny in the last two weeks. Um, The sons are at least going to have this great legacy to know what a sensational person their father was. So why do you think, uh, do he have a wandering eye or why did these relationships always end? You know, it's very hard to keep these relationships going when you're on the road full time. I've learned a lot about the road because I've toured speaking an awful lot. And it's almost, it's a performance, what I do. And uh, and you go back to your hotel room alone and it's lonely and such. And for the first several years with Marianne, she traveled with him. And then they had Christopher, their son, and she stayed home. And when she stayed home, um, he eventually, uh, I think, had a relationship with one of the women that was touring with him. Uh, and that kind of broke up their marriage. Uh, and but but they stayed extremely close, you know, with a son that they both cared a great deal about. Uh, Kenny was, I have to say, I mean, Kenny was one of the most generous human beings I've ever known in every way, shape, or form. And he maintained relationship. Marianne was married when he knew her to a fellow named Michael Trachillis. And he felt after Marianne left Michael to marry Kenny, he felt obligated and they became very good friends. He even had Michael produce a movie. He just was that kind of guy. The band and the crew was with him for 40 or 50 years, the same group. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he was just one of those people that cared about taking care of others. And, um, and I think we have to remember that part of him. The other part of him, of course, is to remember the humor. I, I love one story after things were slowing down. He called me one day and he said, you know, Ken, I feel like we're, we're, we're two old salmon swimming up the stream against the water and we're having a very tough time of it. And I said, no, 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 Kenny, you know, my theory is it's like a small plane. You know, if you get up to one mile, it has a glide range of 10 miles. So even if you turn off the engine, you're going to glide for 10 miles. But you get up to five miles and now you turn off the engine, you glide for 50 miles. Or if you're at 10 miles, you glide for 100. I said, Kenny, the plane you're on is up so high that even after you die, you're going to last. You're going to be around for a long, that plane isn't going to hit the ground for a long time after that. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. And he said to me, you know, Ken, I think I'm planning on living a lot longer than you think. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many moments. He was that kind of guy. and And, you know, when he and Dolly, I have so many great stories of Kenny with Dolly. And, When Kenny and Dolly first got together, uh, I was managing the Bee Gees at that point, and Barry Gibb wrote an album for Kenny. And they were, and they, but Barry's way of working, Kenny recorded the entire Gambler album in three days. That's the way they worked in Nashville. You went in, you cut four or five songs that night, you went back home, you went there the next night, you cut some more, and eventually you had an album. And, you know, in those days, you could only put 10 songs or 11 on an album. You had an album. Barry was taking, you know, weeks to do one song. And they had been working on Islands in the Stream to the point where Kenny hated it. He just said, oh, I'm so bored with this song and I don't like it that much and everything. And I think it was Barry said, we've got to get somebody. Why don't we get Dolly Parton? And I was sitting in the studio and they looked at me and said, get Dolly. Well, I knew Sandy Gallen, who managed Dolly very well. 
And I knew Dolly. We'd, we, had, we had never done anything with her, but I picked up the phone, called Sandy, and within an hour, Dolly was in the studio recording with Kenny. But what I really miss, and I think it's one of the great things I didn't do in my life, was I didn't ha- film what was going on in that studio because those two were cracking everybody up every two minutes. I mean, there's practically nobody funnier than Dolly uh, improvising, I can't say it. Um, And um, and they just were completely cracking us up. And it was the beginning of this phenomenal relationship. And, And I can give you a great example of Dolly and her humor that I think you really enjoy. I took Kenny and Dolly, I took actually Lionel to Australia, flew back on a 24-hour turnaround and took Kenny and Dolly down there. Both acts were touring Australia. And when we got, when we arrived with Kenny and Dolly, there was a press conference. And it was 1984, I think, or maybe 82, in that period of time anyway. It was when the Americas Cup, the sailing uh, uh, contest was going on in Australia. And uh, the new, the media at this press conference said, "Ms. Parton, what do you think of the America's Cup?" And she stood out, stood up, thrust out her chest, and said, "But I am America's Cups." <laughs> well, the whole place cracked up. And here's, here's the thing: the next day, the next day, the head, the front page, the huge picture of Dolly with her chest thrust out and the line, I am America's cups, huge headline down below in the story. Kenny got one little tiny paragraph (laughs) and he was a bigger deal there. We we had toured there before and been big and uh, Dolly got all the media. I mean, she did that to us over and over and over. She's one of the funniest ladies and fortunately still, still doing it, you know, and, 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 entertaining people to this day. I think they're going to do another nine to five movie, by the way, she is. So uh, how do you end up getting uh, the Gibbs involved or Barry Gibb involved with Kenny? You know, somehow we ended up taking them on. I don't know who contacted us about that, but they were brought to me, you know, in the mid eighties, I had 18 months where I had 48% of the top 10 records in America were my artists. People like Kim Carnes, Kenny Rogers, Lionel Richie, uh, Lindsey Buckingham, the Jay Giles Band. Uh, and uh, and so f- over an 18-month period, I had 48% of the top 10 records in Billboard. So number one, that put me on the map. Then I did We Are the World, which Kenny, of course, participated in heavily, and Hands Across America. Somewhere in that period after We Are the World, uh, the the... Bee Gees came to us, you know, things had quieted down quite a bit for them. I flew down to Florida and met with them. Uh, we took them on. We never got a lot going, but they ended up, uh, we ended up having some fun times with them. And, uh, and they ended up recording with Kenny and other things. So how did that come together? How did they get hooked up with Kenny? Uh, because I was representing him and Kenny was, you know, he had gotten Lionel to do Lady for him which was wonderful and one of his biggest So how did that happen? That happened because Jim Mazu was running the record company, running Capital and then and Lib- and overseeing Liberty. Uh, Kenny went to him because Kenny had number one records on the pop on the uh, pop charts as well as the country charts. But the only other chart in those days was the R&B chart. So Kenny said to Jim, 
I want to get a number one record on the R&B chart. And Jen said, well, there's only one guy who ought to write it. He's in a group called the Commodores, and it's Lionel Richie. And uh, either Kenny was appearing in Vegas or Lionel was. I've heard the story both ways. Uh, but um, they got together in Las Vegas. And Lionel, as he tells the story, uh, he had a song he called Baby. And But in typical of Lionel, he did this when he wrote We Are the World. He only had that word and music <laughs> for the song. So Kenny said, I want to get a song. But Kenny had been talking, the way Lionel tells the story, he says Kenny had been constantly talking about what a great lady Marianne was. And, and I heard the story, Marianne was along with him, but he kept talking about Marianne. And finally he said, Lionel, what do you have in the way of a song? And Lionel, thinking on his feet, said, uh, I've got this song, Lady, <laughs> which is, of course, Baby, that he'd already written the music for but had no lyrics. And he sang Baby da -da 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 and played it. Kenny said, where's the rest of it? He said, don't worry, when we get ready to record it, I'll have it. And Kenny said, okay, we'll do it. And they went in the studio. It did, much like Barry's recording of Kenny, it drove Kenny a little nuts because Lionel was used to even taking more time. I mean, Kenny said, you know, with Lionel, you'd record a single note if he didn't like the way the, the note sounded. You'd do the note over and over. So it was quite an experience, but Lady was a phenomenal record for Kenny. And Lionel does it in his show now. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. 
Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. So, having all this success with The Gambler, with Islands in the Stream, and now with Lady. How do you keep it going? You you keep it going by diversifying, doing different things, finding new ways, you know, making all of a sudden getting a lot of coverage of him as a photographer and so on. And it started to slow down as we got into the 90s. It, you know, he wasn't having, I think 1987 was his last number one album on the country charts and, uh, and or even maybe it was a single at that point. And we tried, uh, we, we did get, uh, um, a few things through the 90s, but mostly we started touring a lot around the world. I was amazed how much following he had, not just in English-speaking countries, that how much success he had. Uh, but in the English countries, uh, you know, New Zealand, where he was like a superstar, Australia, uh, South Africa, which we got criticized for tour- for playing, uh, like a lot of other artists who kind of did it naively as we were. Um, uh, we did a lot of touring, you know, we did the Muppets in England. Uh, we did, uh, we, we, you just, you, you constantly looked for angles and new things. I never got involved in the writing of the music, but if you give me the song, I figured out a way. I mean, by the time we, the late nineties, we had, we, we suddenly had new, new success. He did a song called the greatest and it was about a little boy in a baseball bat in a baseball and the kid throws the ball up in the air and swings once and misses and it doesn't discourage him and he picks the ball up and he throws it up again and he swings and misses and finally he takes the ball for the third time and he throws it up in the air and he swings and he misses and his mom calls him in for dinner and as he's walking into dinner he says i never knew i was the greatest pitcher on earth Anyway, uh, it's a Kenny. That's the gist of the song. It's more elaborate than that. I, what I did was I took Kenny to ballparks to open the season in all the different ballparks. The song came out in April or the late late March, early April, and and different teams had different opening days. Or sometimes we went to more than one park in a day, and he did. Not that he didn't like doing the national anthem, but he'd do America the Beautiful or something, and he'd do the song. And we we launched it by going around and touring ballparks, and also by making hundreds of calls to radio, both what he did with radio, and I literally became, I was very, very, I had been president of the Country Music Association, and then of the Academy of Country Music, which is based out here in LA. And um, I made hundreds of radio calls. And I did that not just on Kenny, I did it on my other artists as well. But there weren't managers calling radio, and radio was still the thing then. We hadn't gotten to the period of streaming and getting your music from Spotify. The greatest becomes a, a big success. How do you capitalize out? Yeah, on- pretty good, but it doesn't go top 10. It, does, it, it becomes a success. It stops somewhere in the teens you know, 15 or 16, something like that, uh, my recollection. But it's still a hit for him and the biggest hit he's had in a number of years. And we follow it with a song he found called Buy Me a Rose. 
And that song uh, really hits home, particularly with women. And so I'll remember what happened with it. Again, you give me the song, I'll find a way to promote it. I was driving home. I somehow knew uh, Marianne Williamson, who was producing the, and I may get the name wrong because there's two ladies like that, the one who was producing uh, the show, um, uh, oh, God, Touched by an Angel. And uh, and I, from my car, I played the song for her and her staff in a meeting in uh, Salt Lake where they were where they were doing the filming, and I played it on the air and they loved it, and I convinced them to do an episode based around "Buy Me a Rose," and Kenny guest starred on it. And the day after that aired, we sold tens of thousands of, of singles and the record became a, a number one hit for him. It was the, one of the last big hits he had. Of course, he also had um, a, a pretty good hit not that long ago in the, in the 2000, I don't know, 13 or whenever it was. He and Dolly had um, a hit with the Old Friends, a song that, again, that Don Schlitz wrote for him. So was Kenny good or bad with money? I wouldn't say good. Uh, he liked to spend it. <laughs> he, liked, he he was good if you want to look at the things he acquired from office buildings to beach houses to uh, the ranch in Georgia to uh, to uh, two or three different airplanes, a helicopter. Um, I remember flying Tommy Lasorda one time on Kenny's helicopter from from. Uh, uh, Atlanta, Georgia to Philadelphia, where he had to be. And he was forever uh, our buddy and our friend for doing that. He had to get there. Um, but um, Kenny knew how to spend it in wonderful ways. He had great taste. Uh, he once had an airplane size of a 727 that had a round bed in the as you walked in. And there was a glass enclosed area that you could put curtains around and there was a bed in it. And then you could seat like 20 people behind that in the in the two compartments behind it. He went all the way up to that. And then in latter years, he worked his way all the way back down to the touring bus. <laughs> By the way, he bought a touring bus for his mom. That was funny. You know, he, his mom, she, he said, what do you want? He, she said, I want a bus so I can go on tour with you. So he bought her a bus. Lucille <laughs> went on the bus everywhere. It was great. But he, you know, he knew how to spend it. And at the same time, he also knew how to make it. Uh, but it made him work. I mean, as a manager, that's a dream because he's working like crazy. You don't have to push him to get out there. Uh, and, and money was never my, has never been my motivator anyway. But, but from a standpoint of an easy client, here was one who basically to support his lifestyle had to work hard and, uh, and never, never grouched about it. He loved it. In fact, if I look at one thing, I believe uh, Lionel and I talked about this uh, the night that I heard Kenny had died. I called Lionel at midnight and we talked for quite a while. Um, you know, I think that um, Kenny loved from a teen being on the road. You know, when you're out there, you get that adulation every night. And, and, and when it suddenly stops, when you suddenly know that you're health is such that you just can't go out anymore. It's got to be a tremendous blow. And uh, in fact, Lionel and I talked about it. I said, Lionel, you got to be prepared for that someday. He said, don't worry. I've, I've thought about it. Um, but he's still going very strong. Um, 
and I think that uh, the last two years after he was forced to um, uh, to stop touring, after a lifetime of that kind of adulation and and reaffirmation and fun, just the the camaraderie of being out with the band, um, all the wonderful things he did on the road, taking cameras along, huge. He took an enormous camera that had to be carried by a couple of people and set up to do pictures that were like, you know, Richard Avedon types of things. And he was just a, a quite amazing at that. And then to have it all kind of come stop, you know, crashing to a stop, uh, Lionel and I kind of agreed that that was the, the start of the downhill part for Kenny and his ill. And then he, you know, his health went on him. So you're in the office. Would Kenny call you? Hey, I got to work. Uh, it was pretty mutual. One of the things I loved about Kenny Rogers is you could go in there with a list. I would take, uh, in those days, I wrote everything out. You know, I'm a calligrapher, so I wrote it out kind of fancy. And uh, I wrote out a list, numbered list, of things that I needed to get him to approve or agree to uh, or things that needed to be discussed. And it could be two pages long, legal size. But Kenny would go through them at lightning speed. Yeah, I'll do this. No, no, I don't want to do this. Oh, what would Frank Sinatra do? Would Frank Sinatra do this? I don't think so. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, that was one of his, I heard that so often, I can't believe it. Um, anyway, we would go down the list. If he said he was going to do it, you could count on it. You could absolutely count that if Kenny Rogers agreed to come to your thing or do this or sing on something or Whatever it was, whatever it was, he would be there. He never would, never would back out, and which many artists do. Uh, you know, they want to say yes to everybody, but then they really turn to the manager and say, "Get me out of this." That's the more common thing that happens all the time. And um, so he he just did that. He was that kind of guy. And you know, I, I the one thing that hadn't been talked about enough not not just by us but by all these tributes to him and everything is how generous he was when I was managing Harry Chapin and Harry was raising money for hunger and homeless issues in America and for uh, a, a group called Long Island Cares uh, and for um, a, a theater in, in Long, on Long Island and stuff. Kenny, Lionel would raise money by going to your backyard and performing for $1,000 and put it, give it to the charity. Uh, even though he made a lot more than that in concert, but not huge, even though he draw, drew very well. Uh, uh, I, I said, Lionel, I think it's Harry Chapin. I'm, so I hope I get it right here. So Harry uh, needed money, and Kenny did a concert in which he handed, at the end of the concert, he handed Harry Chapin a $180,000 check. And Harry Chapin was a guy that, you know, would, was always very loquacious and, I said, I'd never seen Harry ever where he couldn't get a word out. He took that check. He looked at it. It would have taken him more than a year, maybe two, to raise that money for, a char for the charities he supported. And Kenny was handing him $180,000 from one night. And it drove home a point that I made with Harry about how the bigger he got, the more good he could do. And we had to spend more time concentrating on the career. And that was really happening when just right when Harry got killed on the Long Island Expressway in 1981. But the minute Harry went down, Kenny picked up that torch. He, he created the uh, Hunger Media Awards. 
gave put a million dollars into an account and gave a hundred thousand away every year to the media for covering the issues of hunger and homelessness. We did a big thing every year at the UN. It was just typical of Kenny. One time after I mean his first guy on my way to Lionel Richie's house to get him to work on the song, which turned out to be We Are the World, I picked up the phone and the first person I called was Kenny Rogers and he said, Count me in, whatever you're doing. Typical. Okay, so if you had a list of uh, two pages legal pad, what percentage would he say yes to? You know, I, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was generally yes more than no, maybe 60-40. Uh, but there was this agreement that we had. We made an agreement somewhere along the line that if one of us felt passionately about something, doing it or not doing it, whatever, as long as we were really, really passionate about it, the other person would go along with that decision. But he added, in typical Kenny Rogers fashion, but Ken, when I go along with what you want, you'd better be right. And were you ever wrong? Sure. Of course. Then what would Kenny say? Well, I part of what I teach when I teach classes or speak to corporations is how to get caught telling the truth. And when I was wrong or when I made a mistake, which was more often than, you know, than I would wish, uh, I would immediately admit it because what I was doing was building trust. I wanted to get caught when I did something that wasn't in my most, my best interest to admit because admitting it would strengthen my relationship with him. And I've taught that technique to people that you, you tell the truth as a valuable tool. So sure. I mean, I, I made plenty of mistakes. I mean, I'm not perfect by any means. And and so, but most of, I will say this, because Kenny could rise to the occasion. This is another story about Kenny. Basically, Kenny Rogers had the ability, like Michael Jordan, to raise his game when the game was on the line and score. He he wanted the ball and he knew he could score and he took his game up to do that. And um, and the great example of that is actually, it was Kenny's uh, 50th birthday. And I, I live now right across from the golf course at uh, Mountain Gate. And we arranged, Kenny was an avid golfer, and we arranged for Kenny to play with Steve Wynn, believe it or not, O.J. Simpson, pre uh, <laughs> the trial and murder days. Uh, O.J. Simpson, Steve Wynn, and the golf pro were playing a foursome with Kenny. I hid around the 18th hole, 150 people behind rocks and trees and everything, to jump out when he made the putt and yell surprise. Except, unfortunately, they got my message wrong. And when he was about 18 feet off the green, they jumped out, everybody, and yelled surprise. Now he calmly chipped to within about nine feet and sunk the putt. <laughs> I looked at him. I said, you got to join the tour. This kind of pressure really works. You know, it's so funny. I mean, he uh, he could raise whatever it was. You listen to his duets. When he had somebody terrific singing with him, like Sheena Easton or, or Dottie West, who he did drums with, or certainly with Dolly Parton. I saw her on an interview the other night say, he was just warming up with all those other women waiting to get to me. <laughs> and and uh, when, when he would raise his, he loved singing duets with, with talented singers uh, because he would then need to lift his game 
to match them in his view, and he would do it. And he would do it every time. So getting success with Kenny Rogers was certainly more frequent than not because whatever was needed to make him successful at that moment in time, he raised his game to deliver it. And then, uh, so a lot of people like professional athletes, you know, they're calm and then all of a sudden the lights come on and they turn it on. Was that what it was like for him live or was he, what was he like just before he went on stage? Well, I remember in Las Vegas one time where he was, it was one of his first appearances at the Riviera. He was headlining and we were in the dressing room and 40 minutes, 30 minutes before he ordered a dinner. And they delivered the dinner 10 minutes before he went on stage. And he calmly sat there eating it, got up, maybe he burped a little, and walked on stage and did a sensational show. There was no nerves you ever saw, ever. I mean, I had artists who were afraid to go on stage. I, I had artists, uh, God, I remember backstage in, in Japan when I was touring with Lionel Richie and we were, and Barry Manilow was on the program you weren't allowed to look at Barry as he went from the dressing room to the stage. Nobody could make eye contact or even look there. Uh, I don't know how often that happened, but that, uh, you know, it, there were times where uh, I saw incredible nervousness in people and um, before they went on stage. And then they got on stage and they used that kind of energy to, to do something, you know, terrific. Uh, Kenny was just the opposite. He was the same guy on stage, off stage, you know, he, I mean, I, I had artists I managed who would never go anywhere because they really couldn't stand to be mobbed. Kenny Rogers would go everywhere, but he wouldn't be mobbed because he just acted like one of the people that was there, you know, and he didn't like signing autographs, uh, but he would, he would pose for pictures uh, he, uh, you know, he, he loved his fans. He knew how important they were to him, but we went to movie theaters. We went, he never restricted his life by being a celebrity. And that's pretty rare. So if he would go out shopping or go to the movie theater, would he bring security? He had one guy, uh, that was with him for many, many, many years, uh, whether he uh, you know, I, maybe he had, yeah, he had one guy that I remember, I don't even think he was carrying anything if there was real, you know, the times were a little different through some of the period of time. But he had once one guy who was kind of a, a close associate friend, but was really a, had a police background and bodyguard kind of thing. I, I never paid any attention to whether he was carrying a gun or something like that. Uh, we never certainly needed it. We did have, <laughs> I do remember <laughs> the wildest incident I remember with Kenny w was scary, was walking, he was walking out of the, out of uh, going off the stage and walking through the audience into the tunnel, you know, to go to the dressing room. Mm -hmm. And a pregnant woman jumped down from, from above him, you know, just as you're going under that overhang. Right. She, she, it wasn't that high compared to where she, where you know, he was just going under it, but jumped on him, just came from up there. And, and she, it was just enthusiasm. I don't think she fell. I think she jumped. Uh, that was probably one of the more scary moments. He used to do a fun thing. He used to, he got a, a, a guitar case, 
or a large equipment case and had it built in such a way that he could sit in it. And he had a, he performed in the round for many years because you could get more people in the theater and he could walk around and he could connect with more people. And he, oh, he started that. He was one of the first, he put his band in the middle and then it was like a donut and he walked around on the donut. Well, he arranged after a while to be pushed in this equipment cart before the, sh as the show, before the show was actually starting. And he was in the equipment cart and then he would come out of the equipment cart and get on stage, come up on stage in a cloud of smoke so you didn't see him and all of a sudden in the center of the stage there he was appearing the smoke cleared and he was there and you never knew how he got out there it was great he loves to do stuff like that you know i mean that he was a very adventurous very adventurous did he ever push it too far i don't think i don't think so much in that area i, I you know um I think what he pushed too far at times were just the elaborate way he had lived. He had grown up in total poverty. Kenny was a part, one of eight kids living in a in a uh, project in Houston when they had a home. Some of the times they were living in Crockett, Texas, and in family homes and stuff. But eight of eight kids in one room is the way he described it, and um, uh, some older than him, some younger. And uh, and they were very poor. His father, Kenny's, I think a lot of Kenny's humor came from his father. His father worked as a carpenter. But what I was told by Kenny is the most money his father ever made was um, $65. And he made it during the war in one week working at the, at the docks as a carpenter. And... Um, and his father was also an alcoholic, a, a friendly, funny alcoholic, but an alcoholic. So he spent a lot of the money on alcohol, and he didn't make much. So it made it very, very tough on that family. Lucio was, was the backbone of that family and pretty incredible. Did his father live to see his success? Some of it, yes. So he did. He did live, live to it. And, and was he appreciative? Yes, but Kenny would tell all kinds of funny stories how— he would come home and his father wouldn't want to ask him for money directly, but he'd go, you know, if a man had a saw, you know, an electric saw, he could build these these little birdhouses and sell them. You know, it'd be a great thing to have a really nice electric saw. <laughs> Stories like that. My my favorite story, Kenny, Kenny had a brother named Roy Rogers and Roy played hooky from school one day and he came home and he all of a sudden, he saw his father coming up the front stairway in the middle of the day. So he went, Roy pulled up into a, an opening into the attic. And when he got up there, he found all these bottles hidden there. Suddenly, Roy, looking for a bottle of liquor, comes in, opens the thing, and reaches up in there. And Roy, the son, the, the son says, he, I can't remember now his name for a minute, but let's say Ed. He says, Ed... This is your conscience. Don't touch that music, that, that liquor. <laughs> he got in a lot of trouble, the kid did, for that. But, uh, but it was pretty funny. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. 
The Walker Hayes for JCPenney Collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Well, speaking of alcohol, uh, anyone who's been on the road knows that it's very tough to have the adulation of 20,000 people in an arena, then come back to your hotel room and be with the same people week after week. A lot of people cope with that via alcohol or drugs. How did Kenny do on those things? For most of his life, he really never touched alcohol. I think his father being an alcoholic was somewhat of a lesson to him. Um for most of his life, he was really, really um, uh, stayed away from alcohol or drugs. Uh, there were some drugs done in the group, but minor, merely just smoking a little grass or something. But not for Kenny. He didn't touch any of that for many, many, many years. And um, at, at least till his 50s. And then really, I think at one point, uh, he had some problems with medication because he had back and knee operations and stuff. And so he probably had, a, for a while, I think, from what I understand, I wasn't really uh, handling him during that period. But uh, in the latter part of life, uh, he had to kind of get off of opioids or whatever it was that he was using for pain. Uh, but uh, he just generally, that wasn't his personality. You know, he just didn't need it and he didn't want to use it. And uh, and it it wasn't part of his life. And he never drank. I don't think, as far as I know, unless there was something in latter years, because uh, I haven't, I didn't, I represented him for 33 years, but that ended in 2001. And um, 
And although we stayed close and talked on the phone, I never really heard anything that would make me think he was ever drinking, and he probably never did. Okay, what about, were you involved when he got involved with Kenny Rogers Roasters, the chicken? Was that after Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, uh, John Y. Brown was the governor of uh, Kentucky. And in fact, we- And he was married to Miss America or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's how they knew him, because Marianne- knew uh, uh what was her name phyllis phyllis george right. yeah and uh marianne and phyllis george were very friendly and we ended up getting invited to the kentucky derby and to stay at the governor's mansion and the other guests at the governor's mansion included uh walter cronkite i ended up on the tennis court playing tennis with kenny rogers walter cronkite and kenny's pro a guy named kelly Unkerman. Uh, and I thought, I can't believe it. I'm here. I am facing across the net, Walter Cronkite. But uh, but John Y and Kenny became very good friends, and John Y had this idea of creating this uh, roasters, and he did. Um, and Kenny got a part of it. The problem really was to make those things successful, you have to spend a fortune in advertising, and they never really did that. It, it was going to take a very significant amount of money. They had some success with it. It was a very good product. Uh, There was one in Nashville uh, uh, that I used to go to occasionally. uh, uh, And and Kenny went to a lot of the openings, and he would go whenever he was in a town where there was one. He'd just show up and surprise everybody. And it was a lot of fun for a while. He never made anything off of it, as I recall. And it finally ended up closing John Y. after he was governor, I think, moved to Florida. They ran it out of Florida. But, uh, but you know, it became a, a, a joke in a funny way. I mean, uh, it, it, uh, Seinfeld did a series where the Roasters opens up one of his shows, one of the episodes, Roasters opens up down below his apartment, and the smell of the chicken is wafting up into the apartment, and it's driving them crazy, and they're trying to get rid of the Roasters. And uh, we had a lot of fun with that one. Now, let's make Kenny a little more three-dimensional. You said a lot of positive things, but everyone's got their uh, positives and negatives. Uh, What can you say to flesh him out as a person? Was he short-tempered? Could he tolerate stupidity? No one is nice all the time. No, uh, but I will say uh, he came about as close to that as anybody you could imagine. Uh, He rarely got upset at anything. I think over the 30, over our 33 years, the only time he ever yelled at me or had a problem was back in the, after, just after we'd done the first or set gambler and the, and the movie coward of the County. And we're about to do the next gambler. And he got a lawyer in town, a big time lawyer who represented studio heads and heads of, of agencies and stuff. I don't remember his name, fortunately. He's no longer with us anyway. Uh, uh, he got this lawyer, and my lawyer, a wonderful guy named Tom Rowan, who I've had forever, said to me, Ken, the first thing he's going to do is get rid of you. And sure enough, I get a call from Kenny Rogers, and he's furious that I have taken advantage of him by being his partner on things like The Gambler, which, by the way, I created and sold. I didn't write the script, but I created the idea, sold the movie, produced every frame of it, every aspect of it. And and the lawyer has convinced him that because we're 50-50 partners on that, I've taken huge advantage of him. 
And so now he's yelling at me that, you know, that deal can't go on ahead and, and everything. And I'm calming him down. I don't remember another time in 33 years. I mean, I, I, when I finally split with him, it was, we were a three-way partnership with Jim Mazza, the record guy. And it was Jim who called me. I didn't even talk to Kenny. Kenny literally uh, was honored three months later and uh, apologized from stage at the Academy of Country Music Awards on television. Uh, sort of said, Ken Cragen has been responsible for every great thing that happened to me in the last 33 years. Um, you know, and that kind of made everything up for me. Um, and uh, so I, I, I really have a hard time. Uh, I can, you know, I've certainly had artists who were handfuls. And, uh, but by the way, not for long, because my theory is if they're wrecking your life, move on. Uh, if they're dominating your life, move on. Um, I was never ready and willing to let somebody make my life miserable or, or, you know, I, I wanted, in fact, at one point I had a company called Ken Cragen and Friends. That's probably the best way to think about my, my life. Okay, I'm talking more about Kenny. Any other uh, stories, anecdotes that you can remember? He was almost too good to be true for a long time. I, he did have he had he had problems with marriages uh, early on. One of the early things that happened in the early beginning of the seventies was he was married to a lady who, and they fought a lot, and it was a very very up and down relationship. And the other members of the first edition came to me and said, "You've got to talk to Kenny." And tell him that if he can't keep his personal stuff away from the group, uh, we're going to have to let him out of the group. And I did. And ultimately, it led to him getting a divorce. I don't know that that was the motivation for the divorce because they were having their problems. But um, truthfully, you never it wasn't that he was hiding that side. I mean, I this is a guy. In that 33 years, maybe less in the latter years, but in those 33 years, we were so intimately involved day and night, show after show, on the road, off the road. Uh, you know, he was, he, he became such a, mon I mean, I had other big clients, Lionel Richie and others, but Kenny was the number one client. And uh, I really had everything to do with him constantly. So you're talking about a lot of the great ideas you came up with. Do you remember any of the ideas that Kenny came up with? Or was it really more direction from you? Well, that's an interesting thought. Uh, I guarantee he came up with plenty because he was always very creative. Um, but that's, you know, you're going to have to, I'm going to have to really look at that and not be sure. He would take credit for ideas I came up with, but I hope I rarely took credit for ideas he came up with. And he, and he was that kind of, you know, person. I mean, he was extremely creative. Um, I don't know. I think we did, we did tend to divide it up where his creativity was, was most evident was in both selecting the music, the show itself. I was rarely, you know, the, the, the way he, the idea of the, of the circle, the performing in the circle of coming on as a surprise of, uh, getting the best lighting director in the imaginable and doing things that nobody else had done in that area. Uh, so in the performance area, in the recording area, finding the right songs, uh, 
um, you know, tying up with duet partners. I can't ever remember bringing him a duet partner. I would run with the product and come up with ways to creative or promote what whatever he was doing. But all of that stuff, the, the wonderful songs, the wonderful duets, the wonderful live performances, those were, those were his, his doing really quite completely. I just took and found ways to get those out to the widest possible audience. So are there any stories, uh, Kenny Tales, that we haven't covered? There's probably a hundred of them uh, I, should, uh, I should think about. You know, um, I was just going to look. At a list that I made, there there were, you know, there were many moments and times that uh, that we had fun stuff that happened. Opening the first gambler, um, I was able to get uh, Linda Evans, who was huge at that point. I guess it was at Dynasty that she was on, and um, and um, Linda Evans and Bruce Boxleitner, who was also very successful at that moment, as his co-stars, and we get out on the very first day shooting in Arizona and it's 108 degrees and the first scene is her being hanged uh you know she's being hanged and Kenny comes through and rescues her um that's the first thing we shot and at the and what she found immediately this is really kind of a good story about Kenny because what Kenny would do was he couldn't get into the character completely until he was in the costume and had to deliver the lines. But he also would constantly want to change the lines. In fact, it got so the director and he, uh, Dick Lowry was our young director, and he would be sometimes sitting for an hour or two on the set reworking the script. And the funny part of it was he often would change it, change it, change it, and end up, it would end, end up going all the way around to where it really originally was. So much so that the producers on one of our uh, specials that we did gave him a Christmas card and it said, you know, it said Merry Christmas and Mary was crossed out and it said Happy Christmas and Happy was crossed out and it said Have a Wonderful Christmas and that was crossed out on, you know, for 20 different ones. And finally, the last one now not crossed out was Merry Christmas. That was typical of Kenny and scripts. I can remember literally typing pages while they were on the set making changes. And I went up, I always did whatever was necessary. It was somewhere in Arizona and I had a typewriter in an old beat up building and was typing the script and having a runner run them to the set on, on the words I was getting that they were now doing. Well, in any event, with Linda Evans that first day, she had a, a, a lady uh, that worked with her and that woman came up to me and said, you've got to come to Linda's trailer. She's, uh, she's crying and she's not sure she can do this movie. And I went to the trailer and she said, you know, on the, when I was doing my series, when I'm doing the series, you get the script and you don't change a single word. You, were, you learn it exactly as it is, and they would not allow you to change a word. Here, Kenny's changing everything on the set, and I can't work that way. And I said, Linda, but that's kind of the way he works. And she said, well, I don't think I can do it. And I said, just hang in there for a few days and see. By the end of the movie, she loved it so much. She was now raving to me about how much fun it was to work, where you could manipulate the script every day. <laughs> it drove crew and dollars, you know, how much it was costing us to do stuff nuts. But it was one of his traits that uh, 
he and he always told me when I get in the outfit and when I get on the set, that's when I really feel like doing it. Another time, by the way, one of my one of my favorite things that he ever did was on the movie Cow to the County. He plays a preacher who's womanizing and doing other things, and he's not a good guy. But he is a good guy, but he's doing he's you know off the path of of righteousness here. So he has to give a sermon, resigning from the pulpit, and um, and Kenny decided to go home that night and rewrite or totally write the sermon. And he came in the next day and delivered it. And it's, I think, on everything he's ever done, the best single piece of acting he ever did. Because it came from the heart. It, inv- it, it it probably spoke to some of the things that were him in real life. And it was just this incredibly moving confessional speech. And, um, uh, I, and it ended up, I thought, being the best acting I've ever seen him do. Well, Ken, this has been wonderful. Thanks for illuminating, Kenny. How hearing all these stories? Uh, do you think he'll be remembered? Yeah, it's a big, it's a big loss, but it, he lives on in an incredible way right now. Do you know that? By the way, what, just to end up and wrap up and say, do you know that in the week after Kenny died, his greatest hits album went to number one on the country charts, first time since 1987. His "The Gambler" became the number one downloaded song in the country. Oh, and the album, the album became number six on the pop chart, on the total Billboard 100. And The Gambler became number one downloaded and Islands in the Stream number two. Well, people love Kenny. We love you, Ken. Thanks for doing this. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Thank you. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.